The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Would you like to know how to make better decisions for your business, your people, or yourself? Do you want to recognize when you make errors of judgment that cause the quality of your decisions to drop, and when you are moving away from, not closer to, your goal? Welcome to Because There's More with Laura Ellis. For the next hour, Laura and her guests will share experiences and insights that will challenge and stretch your thinking, help you recognize your biases, and ultimately guide you towards more predictable and accurate decisions. You'll walk away from this show feeling better informed, more inspired, and a lot more confident about your next big decision. Now, here's your host, Laura Ellis. Hello, I'm Laura Ellis, and this is Because There's More, the show that takes a closer look at decision-making. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in again, or for the first time, if you this uh, is the first time you're listening to us. I'm delighted to be here with you for another show, and I have a feeling I'm going to start every show saying this, I feel so lucky that I start my weeks this way with my show, because every week I have amazing people on my show as guests who are amazing at what they do, great at what they do, passionate about it what they do, but they also have the generosity of spirit to share with me and with you their experience, their expertise. And in answering my questions, um, we all hope that you will get insights, uh, information, knowledge that will help you make better business decisions. So today, I'm absolutely honored to have on Paul Gibbons. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thank you, Laura. It's a pleasure to have you here, and I'm going to say from the top that I read the book that uh, you wrote or was published this year, and I absolutely loved it, and, and I think you and I have some affinities. I mean, I know we do. Um, just a few words about last week's show. I had on Kevin Layton. He's a digital marketing expert, and for everyone tuning in today, and for you, Paul, I strongly recommend that you do uh, check the episode out because it does contain critical yet very practical advice on how to mount uh, some uh, effective marketing campaign. And my personal biggest takeaway as a young organization was Kevin's recommendation to stick with a marketing campaign for 12 months at least before you decide if it was a success or not. And I don't know about you, Paul, but I know that I start things on social media, for example, and then after a few weeks, I think, oh, I didn't get enough followers, so I'm going to stop. So that was a great, um, great insight that I earned from that. And the other one was the fact that... Um, um, he advises people not to measure the effectiveness of one uh, method, email versus 
LinkedIn, for example, but look at it as an um, as an overall uh, result. So, but more than that, and and that always happens after conversations with with guests like you, Paul. Um, I had some insights that came to me later, and and in talking to other my clients, um, and basically my uh, reflection was that if. And when we listen to experts, and I want to make sure that people know to differentiate or they need to differentiate between experience and expertise uh, when they listen to an expert. And I would consider you an expert in um, in what you've written in the book because you've done so much in that field, Paul. Um, if any of you out there conclude that what you're hearing, it's either common sense or it doesn't make sense, my advice is that you need to listen harder. And I say that with a bit of tongue-in-cheek, but really it is a reflection of my own belief that perhaps these days we're too quick to accept statements that sound good but have very little substance or they're backed by nothing, they have no backing behind them, or at the opposite end of the spectrum, we've become a bit lazy and refuse to challenge what we hear, or we stop looking for the deeper meaning in um, in things. And, and Paul, just in reading your book, I get a strong uh, sense that you and I have similar perspectives on a number of topics. But today we'll focus on what uh, the book discusses in greater detail, the science of successful organizational uh, change. And um, before we talk more, and I let you speak, because I can't wait to hear more from you, um, I just want to uh, read a bit more from your uh, uh, biography, just a few key highlights. You've done a lot, so I'll, I've chosen some that will give our listeners a sense of um, who you are and what you've been about. So Paul Gibbons is passionate about how science can be used to improve human flourishing, focusing on the application of the wider human sciences to business and business leadership. He began his career in neurochemistry, followed by master's level study in international economics and finance. He moved to London as a quant derivatives trader working at Salomon Brothers and Morgan Stanley. At 28, he resumed doctoral study in neuroscience, then joined PwC as a strategist and expert on derivatives, then joined PwC's strategy, change management, and change think tank. In 2001, you founded Future Considerations, a successful training company that you grew significantly, then sold, and joined the University of Wisconsin-Madison as a lecturer, while continuing to coach senior executives worldwide. You have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, The Guardian, The Times Newspapers, and in 2008, CEO Magazine named you one of the two CEO Super Coaches. You've written a self-coaching workbook that I haven't yet read, but I look forward to reading. And this summer, as I said, you published the highly praised book mentioned earlier, The Science of um, Successful Organizational Change. Very impressive pedigree, Mark, I have no doubt, by many important decisions. What were the key decisions that took you um, from the beginning to where you are today and shaped your thinking? Well, hi. Yes. Um, 
you know, it's funny. Uh, decision making is an interesting. Uh, personal decision making is an interesting, um, non-intellectual pursuit in a way. It, it's. Um, I I was lucky enough to be possessed of uh, uh, very strong intellectual strengths when I was a young man. I I had finished university long before I was twenty years old, so uh, that's an unusual thing. So one yeah. might think, oh, is. And, uh, but nevertheless, despite that intellectual sort of prowess at a very young age, um, I made a lot, I think, of, of poor decisions. And, uh, and a lot of that was, uh, comes from not having the self-knowledge, I think, which is important um, to know what's important to you and, and why it's important. And also, increasingly, we understand the relationship between emotions and how emotions help us filter uh, environmental stimuli and how uh, emotions tell us what's important. So while our intellect tells us how to get somewhere, more often than not, it's the emotions that provide direction and decision-making in life. And, and most of the research today on cognitive biases tells us that we are not nearly as rational as we'd like to pretend we are. And I, I think, lived under the fantasy that, um, uh, that uh, just having a, a towering intellect was uh, going to get me the the things that I wanted in life. And it's actually, it's sort of the booby prize in a way because it requires much more. So anyway, part of my career decisions were around, um, uh, first of all, abandoning science, which was my first love. And uh, if I had to go back to my 18-year-old self and say, I don't do that. But the other decision was, um, in a sense, to explore the other side of humankind, uh, emotions, values, spirituality. And that happened in the mid-1990s when I was in my 30s. Partly it was provoked by working in a strategy consultancy and seeing lots of strategy recommendations, which were sometimes very costly, fail. And so I worked on a team with some very, very, very clever folks uh, at one of the world's most famous banks. And uh, we, we, they spent millions on our recommendations and did nothing with them, even though they loved our recommendations, which is a peculiar thing. They thought we did great work but they were unable to put them into, into practice. And for me, uh, that was a, it was a shocking and horrible experience. It was my first, uh, first experience as a consultant, and I really wanted to produce value for the client, and uh, I was excited about my new career. And to toil as long as we did and, and produce the good work that we did, but fail to engage the organization properly and fail to help them make the changes that we recommend, I thought... Uh, uh, it was a very disappointing job. And also at the same time, I want to speak a little bit about rationality because I, I was doing cancer research at the age of, uh, I was about 19, at um, uh, University of Wisconsin, the McArdle Institute, which had you know, a good number of new Nobel Prize winners running around. And I was studying cigarettes and the effect of cigarettes on cancer. And uh, I used to watch the extract from cigarette smoke that we were using to study. We studied DNA and RNA and synthesis. I used to watch uh, the mice we were treating with this thing get cancer. And then I used to pop out for a Marlboro and I smoked a pack of Marlboro Red a day, you know, up until I was in my early 30s. And so that's a fascinating, I think, study into humankind is that it takes more than just rationality to affect, uh, to, to, to be a good decision maker, if you will. And, uh, and I think that's one of my great curiosities about humankind is how 
when it comes to vaccination, how when it comes to climate change, how when it comes to a number of these important issues such as obesity and such as smoking, human beings have this incredible capacity to deny the facts, to deny the evidence. And even in my case, when I was producing the evidence myself, you know, I didn't have to take anyone's word for it. I was actually doing research on the substance that was killing me one, one cancer stick at a time. So that's a, a sort of personal tour slightly through, through my own journey. I reinvented myself in the 1990s and became a, a change guy. And that, um, that involved a lot of work on the emotional side of, if you want, the human condition uh, as a psychologist, partly and, and partly in a number of different other pursuits. So I hope that's uh, that's pointing us in the right direction. Is that the sort of answer you were looking for, Laura? Absolutely. And I can tell you that uh, I could probably talk to you for the next five hours nonstop because I'm um, fascinated by everything you've shared. And at the same time, I have huge respect for you being such a visionary um, at a time when um, I, I would say management consulting, I'll stick with um, uh, the world of business for sure, uh, was trying to truncate and silo thinking rather than bringing it together. So, um, and, and it fascinates me and it inspires me uh, because it is exactly what I'm trying to do with this organization realizing over a period of years working with leaders that, as you said, first of all, knowledge or information is not sufficient uh, for people to um, incorporate it in their decision-making, in their behavior. Um, secondly, is that we often um, kind of uh, differentiate, use language against um, us by making sure that a concept uh, or a construct doesn't interact with another. I mean, you know, you have companies for which I have huge respect like McKinsey, BCG, um, it would be a far stretch to say that um, uh, those consultants have uh, even basic knowledge of psychology or sociology or anthropology or anything else, right? And the same goes for people in the human capital uh, field. So to have someone who early on felt and realized the need to bring all those sciences together, it's absolutely uh, fascinating. And, and that's why I'm so in awe of the book you've written and your point of view. And it says here that your book offers the, the first blueprint for change that fully reflects the newest advances in mindfulness, behavioral economics, sociology, and complexity theory. And I couldn't agree more, though I didn't write those words. What attracted you to um, to sciences in the first place, and so many of them, and so different? Well, I'll just on what you just said, um, uh, uh, McKinsey. Uh, I have, I, I think McKinsey are are the uh, a great example of pr probably the cleverest uh, consulting uh, firm out there. There's no question. I mean, I, uh, today. As 25 years ago, when I began my career, they really, really uh, do some remarkable thinking. But we used to joke around in the 1990s that we used to come in after McKinsey to try and help implement McKinsey's recommendations, that they were, in fact, an example. And I don't think it's true so much today at all. Um, they focus much more on helping clients implement change today. But they were an example of uh, people who got paid huge sums of money, sometimes tens of millions and twenties of millions of dollars more than that, 
to make recommendations on strategy to clients. And frequently, uh, the clients would, as, a, uh, as with my own change experience at Barclays Bank, agree with the recommendations, but nevertheless find themselves unable to, unable to implement them because it requires something more than just reasons. But having said that, I love your questions about science. Um, you know, I, I, think there are, I think of civilization, our, the, our human journey is you know, having three great temples. One is, one is science, the other one is art, and, and, and the other one, I think, is business, because business, well, I'll say why I love science. I mean, science is, you know, uh, in, in 2,500 years, this, uh, you know, hairless ape, uh, which had barely invented agriculture, has done the most remarkable things. And, and so are the, the, the science is a collective effort uh, of humankind transcending itself generation after generation and doing more for each other and uh, using science to the betterment of humankind, I think is, you know, it's just a, a, the most inspiring thing for me is the, is the journey of science, the journey of scientific revolution and the journey of the 20th century. Um, but having said that, business is also an incredible um, thing. If you think about there are businesses today which employ millions of people. Um, those are small city-sized business, and that's a remarkable thing. And why, business ties into science because if it were not for business, most of our science would remain in the laboratory. I mean, if a scientific invention is going to become useful to the world, some business guy, frequently not a scientist, is going to have to find a way to scale it and bring it into our homes. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, for me, the great and important thing that business does is it takes human knowledge and translate it into things that are useful to humans. And so one of the ways I think about business is it's not really a profit-making enterprise. Your profits help you turn on the lights. They help you pay the electricity bill. But really the important thing about business is what it does for humankind. And I think business is, 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 the, way we apply, um, is the way we apply science. Yeah, uh, that's uh, absolutely great. And I told you, today is going to be one of those where I'm not going to see the time go. Uh, so unfortunately, we're going to have uh, to go a into break. a short break. But we'll be back uh, soon and we'll talk more with Paul Gibbons about his uh, book and how he's come to make all those amazing suggestions, uh, what he's learned from what he studied. So I can't wait to hear more. Don't go Thanks. away. And we'll be back very soon. comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Are you a CEO, a board director, or an entrepreneur looking to have more control over the future of your organization? If the answer is yes, you need Tab Ignite. Our approach is unique, intelligent, and it works. Our solution is exclusively positioned to guarantee the results you seek for your business because we make it simple for you to tap our advisor's expertise and experience and make accurate business decisions. Ask Tab Ignite to work for you at tabignite at trustedadvisoryboard.com and make your next decision the first of many best decisions for your company. 
Do you believe in the value you bring to an organization? Have you been overlooked for a promotion because you think differently than your peers? Do you know that you can and will make a difference to the business? Let Tab Advance be your personal advisory board and help you make different, better decisions about your career. Our team is customized to your successful advancement and hones in on when, why, and how you make those decisions. Build a more fulfilling career. Contact us today at advance at trustedadvisoryboard.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into Because There's More with host Laura Ellis. To connect with our program today, please send Laura an email to lellis at trustedadvisoryboard.com. Now, back to Because There's More. Hello, I'm Laura Ellis, and this is Because There's More, the show that takes a closer look at decision-making. And it couldn't be more appropriate than having Paul Gibbons today. Hi, Paul. Um, Because we are talking, we are talking so much about uh, the relevance of different sciences to to running a business. And and just before the break, Paul, you were telling us how um, or what fascinated you about science and what fascinates you um, about um, uh, business. And, And we're talking how a lot of businesses or, or let's say consulting firms in the management consulting field um, continue because I can resonate with your example of McKinsey to actually um, uh, bring in an aspect of the work but not the other. Um, so let's talk more about the book. How did you come to, uh, to write the book? What caused you to start writing it? No, it's funny. Yeah, I, I was gonna. I had never. I had never written a book in the summer of 2013, even though I had wanted to for for a long while. And one of the reasons I didn't write a book was I thought I could never write the sort of book that I would buy. Um, I, I I I I like books that are rich and dense in in detail and ideas. And I just didn't think with my full time job and two children and running my own business and yeah. You know, pursuing my own education, I would never be able to write one. So finally in 2013, I arrived in a place where the time was right to do so. I had uh, just moved to a place where I knew no one and uh, I'd left behind a portfolio of client work where I, from where I moved in, in the United Kingdom. And so here into this void, I thought, well, I'm finally going to write the book. But the book I was going to write was going to be the ABC change management book. It was going to be the simple how-to, 150 pages basic guide change management for managers that don't know much about leading people through change. And as I began to write the book, I began to sort of like a magpie thinking, oh, here's some interesting stuff I'll put in on cognitive biases. And here's some interesting stuff I'll put on an antifragility. And so by the end of the summer, when I'd begun uh, the book, it went from being an ABCs of change management to really, I think, I may say, one of the most uh, advanced books on change management there is out there. It's not really written for um, people who aren't very experienced business people or people who are uh, experienced in leading change. So in a way, what I think it does well is it does the, um, it takes the 30 or 40 most important books written in the human sciences. And by that, I mean, I, I do mean psychology, um, but also economics, finance, sociology, neuroscience, anthropology, 
and it puts together the most important advances in the human sciences and tries to deploy them so that change people and strategists can can make sense of them in their business. And so um, it went from being a book that I was going to write in three months to taking almost two years of full-time full -time effort uh, and research. So... And I'd say it's amazing that it only took you full time, uh, two years, sorry, full time, because there is so much information in the book. And it, it may not be a fair question uh, because of uh, the content being so rich to ask what, what would be the premise or the key messages. But just in hope that uh, people out there want to know more um, and then pick up the book because it's absolutely worth reading it. What would you say the, the key messages are from the book? Well, I think one of the one of the key messages that I want to leave people with is that change management hasn't really advanced in the last 20 years. So since the very early work in the 1990s from a guy called John Cotter in Harvard um, and, and, and various other thinkers, you know, from my point of view, we're still talking about the same things as we were talking about 20 years ago. And I think lots of them are wrong. Uh, and I talk about which particular old ideas are wrong in the book. But the very first, when I took my first course in change management myself, in 1994, the first model I learned was the model from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross on death and dying, which you'll recognize as denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. So um, that was how I was told people approach death, her research in the 1960s, but it's also how people uh, approach change. And it's found our way not just into business culture, but into you know, the way we talk about someone's in denial or someone's going through the grief cycle. But it's just nonsense. Not only doesn't it describe death, very well and people have failed to be able to people approach death in different ways but change isn't like death there are people who approach change in a myriad of different ways and some people uh, and these are the kind of people with whom it's great to work uh, are excited by it and challenged by it and intrigued by it and enticed by it and want to be part of it so just one of these models that was accepted as truth is just garbage and i mean i go through that and there's another famous model which is unfreeze, move, refreeze, yeah, yeah. again, and again, a model that, uh, that's not accurate. And then one of the other ones uh, that's associated with John Cotter's work is something called a burning platform, which is a metaphor for people jumping off an oil rig uh, <laughs> that's about to collapse. And, you know, fear doesn't motivate people. And the more that we try and motivate people with fear in organizations, the more we disengage them. And neuroscience tells us that when people are afraid, which is what the burning platform metaphor is supposed to suggest, that their decision-making is worse and that their creativity is worse. So, so here are three models which are right at the center of what people still today on LinkedIn, you'll see posts about these models. Yeah, and they're yeah. pure garbage. So that's one of my one of my, I said, takeaways to the world is just be careful about what you accept as truth. Yeah, yeah. And just if I may make a point there, um, you know, I mean, uh, I love the the input that you are uh, sharing with us because so many things of what you're saying uh, are beliefs that I hold very, uh, very personal beliefs. But uh, going back to whether or not uh, the model of change are right or wrong, I didn't spend that much time uh, doing it, but it's just another one of the areas in which nothing has changed in a very long time, yet the complexity of the world that we live in has increased 
multiple fold. I mean, you know, um, it, it's hard to imagine that science and technology has evolved so much. Um, our understanding of the brain has gone so far, our understanding of ourselves, of what we can and we're capable of doing, yet areas like uh, uh, business management, um, uh, change management, and everything else there, leadership, everything else, um, is no different today than it was 150 years ago when it started to uh, come together as as a science. And one of the things that I always, um, um, I don't smile actually, it's it's the wrong way of saying it because it, um, it upsets me knowing that people get afraid of change is that everywhere you read is uh, people don't like change. And, and my argument is if people didn't like change, um, I don't know, uh, the, the hair industry, the makeup industry, the, the real estate agency, the manufacturer of cars industry wouldn't exist because those are changes that people create in their lives and then they welcome, they seek them. We work hard because we want another house, a bigger house, a bigger car and, and everything else. So um, I totally agree. Let me ask you this question, Paul. How, how do you think people would jump from knowing nothing to coming to read a book like yours? Because this is something that I personally am passionate about and try to bridge um, the gap um, I read reviews to your book, and, and those people who are senior in their field and uh, understand uh, that change doesn't work in, in the models uh, that you shared or you cited, they loved your book. Like, they absolutely loved the book. The, the, the accolades were so high. How do you bridge um, people being there? to starting from knowing nothing and just like reading unfreeze, refreeze, freeze. I can't even remember. I studied in first year of psychology. Mm -hmm. You're saying, how do I, how do I bridge? The, yes. How, uh, how do what do you suggest we do? Because it's, it's great to see people who understand your book and seek your book and, and try to apply it. But what do we do with the rest of people who work in businesses yeah. who would find the book too much or too advanced or well i'm not sure anyone will do that i mean okay so the high level message is question, question everything yeah. so you know um mm -hmm. it's one of the great promises of the enlightenment <clears throat> uh the scientific revolution uh as philosophers at that time said don't accept what people tell you is truth ask for yourself find out for yourself be your own judge and don't don't pay as much attention to received wisdom or common sense or, or things that are come out of the mouths of change gurus. So <clears throat> that's one thing I want is to, uh, used to be a hippie bumper sticker, hit question everything. So that would be one stance that I would like people to take. It's a, skept it's a skeptical stance. It's a, uh, a demand for people to produce evidence for what they say. So that's one thing. So that's a very high level message. But I don't want your, you, your listeners to think that all of the conclusions from the book are negative. I mean, I do spend some time on pseudoscience and anti-science and change management myths. I have a list of 20 change management myths, most of which are still believed and still in use. But I also want to speak about the positive side of it because it's not just about tearing down what doesn't work or what's not believed. I mean, a good three-quarters of the book is bringing 
new ideas and ideas I don't think you'll find very many other places uh, to the change world. So some of the work on changing behaviors and on changing the habits um, is new 21st century research on how habits change. Well, why are habit change important? Because if you talk to people, for example, they've done research on people who have a heart attack. Now, that's a pretty serious event. And only 4% of the people who suffer from myocardial, myocardial infarction changed their diet, exercise, and smoking behaviors, the three categories of behavior. That's 4% of the people who have a heart attack. So if people who think that change is all about reasons, well, we know that it's not. It takes more than just reasons for people to make personal changes. But people say, oh, it's about the emotions. Well, no, it's not about the emotions because if nearly dying and saying goodbye to your loved ones is not a sufficiently emotional experience to provoke change in behaviors, then what is? So that's one important message. And why is that the case? It's because habits are hard to change. And so the 21st century, we've begun to really understand more about habits. I think Carol Dweck's work on the growth mindset And uh, one of the things that I'm talking to Microsoft about at the moment is how do you create a growth culture in your organization where people embrace challenges and so rather than resist change or fear change or oppose change, is how do you create a culture in an organization where novelty is welcomed and that's good for innovation, it's good for driving creativity, it's good for driving business results, it's good for driving entrepreneurship. So those are some of the positive ideas. And again, there are many, many, and there are probably too many to list. But So I want to leave your readers not thinking that this is this guy just telling, saying that everybody else is full of baloney. Um, but actually, most of the research in the 21st century is pointing us towards some really exciting new and practical things that we can do in the change world. Yeah, and and I totally agree. And by no means I wanted to um, uh, take the uh, discussion in that direction. My personal um, um, experience has been that we uh, everything is moving so quickly that we often don't have the time to access the information that is perhaps reflective of exactly what you said, 21st century research. Um, I, I do find that there's still an imbalance between what's happening in the academia and in the lab and what's being transferred or transmitted into, into the business. What, what's your perspective on that? I mean, I know that a book like yours, I will start recommending to all of my clients, but only so many of the people out there are my clients. So that's what I was talking about. What's your perspective of um, how much science comes into business today? Uh, I was having a, a, a chat uh, with a professor of criminology and talking about um, uh, some of the work that I, some of the research I put in the book is actually from the criminal justice system because we experiment in the criminal justice system with punishing people as a way of changing behavior. That's part of the objective of incarceration in the criminal justice system is to change behavior. And uh, so I asked a criminologist, I said, what percentage of the criminal justice system follows the science that sociologists and criminal justice people do? And he says, whatever the science says, the criminal justice system does the opposite. So I, I, I had to chuckle at that. And that's partly, um, in fact, very also true in business, is that so much of what 
business people do, and I'm going to particularly speak about human resources, does flies in the face of evidence. So one example in the book, um, and I'm talking about evidence-based management now, which is managing based on what science tells you is the best practice. So one of the ways that people interview for jobs today is that interviewers have a chat with them. So someone hustles from their desk into a little room to meet a new candidate and has 45 minutes or an hour with them and asks them a series of questions about their behavior. And of course, of my 35-year business career, I've had a lot of these so-called chat interviews. Tell us a bit about your experience, walk us through why you made this choice, uh, how did you like living in London? Um, that's called a, an unstructured interview by psychologists or a chat interview. They're almost uncorrelated with success on the job. So I want your readers to really hear that. That interview technique, that represents about 80% of what happens. Even recruiting people at a very senior level has no predictive success. It's slightly better than astrology at predicting how well someone will lead in an organization. So what works better? And there's a host of different tools, but certainly assessment centers, work samples, structured interviews, behavioral interviews. There are a whole number of different tools that human resources can deploy to help assess candidates better. Yet 80% of what happens in the business world is people walking into a room and having a chat with a new candidate. So Again, it doesn't predict success, but here's, you know, how many millions of those kind of interviews are happening in the business world today? Yeah. Quite a lot. And if I just may uh, yeah. step in there just for one second, of course, we're coming close to the break. But uh, yeah. uh, I, uh, I wanted to say when you say that are almost uh, unpredictable of success, it's actually a higher prediction of success if you toss up a coin because you'll get 50-50, you know, at least you have 50% if you get it right. So it's no different than guessing. And I'm saying that because this is what I've done and this is what I do. And um, what, what makes it worse is that when organizations and I totally agree with you, when an organization does decide that they need to bring in the experts and, you know, um, I spent seven years running assessment centers for a number of right. our clients. If a change in, in business uh, um, revenue happens for the worse, uh, those are sometimes the first things that get cut. And the problem is that while the experts while we were on on you know on site things were being done the scientific way but the client per se learned nothing about our science and while i'm not saying that you can learn in one session what someone has studied and applied for more than 10 years there's still absolutely no transfer of knowledge. But we're going to go into the break. And what I'd like you to focus on when, you, when we come back well, is really mm. discuss more about those uh, points that are very positive in, in your book. You're absolutely right. And encourage people, one, to pick up your book. And, and secondly, to, to give a second thought to maybe the way I'm doing things today um, can be changed to better results and better outcome. Um, so encourage people to think and question a bit what they do uh, typically. So don't go away. We'll be back in a couple of minutes.
from the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. Do you believe in the value you bring to an organization? Have you been overlooked for a promotion because you think differently than your peers? Do you know that you can and will make a difference to the business? Let Tab Advanced be your personal advisory board and help you make different, better decisions about your career. Our team is customized to your successful advancement and hones in on when, why, and how you make those decisions. Build a more fulfilling career. Contact us today at advance at trustedadvisoryboard.com. Are you a CEO, a board director, or an entrepreneur looking to have more control over the future of your organization? If the answer is yes, you need Tab Ignite. Our approach is unique, intelligent, and it works. Our solution is exclusively positioned to guarantee the results you seek for your business because we make it simple for you to tap our advisor's expertise and experience and make accurate business decisions. Ask Tab Ignite to work for you at tabignite at trustedadvisoryboard.com and make your next decision the first of many best decisions for your company. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are tuned into Because There's More with host Laura Ellis. To connect with our program today, please send Laura an email to lellis at trustedadvisoryboard.com. Now, back to Because There's More. Hello, I'm Laura Ellis, and this is Because There's More, the show that takes a closer look at decision-making. And I'm here with Paul Gibbons, who has been talking to us, uh, sharing with us some amazing insights and, and information uh, that he also put together in his book uh, that I strongly recommend. And I will uh, make sure that I say the name at least a couple of times. So it's The Science of Successful Organizational Change. And um, you will find that on Amazon. And just before the break, uh, Paul uh, was telling me that he put into his book, and I loved reading the book, a lot of the things that tap into 21st century science that allow organizations to get better um, results. So, Paul, share with us some more uh, what some of those things are and and hope that um, people will buy the book because it is an amazing book. Um, Well, uh, some more of the specific and positive things that are coming out of the book is, is, are in the areas of changing behaviors. As with my uh, early um, client experience at Barclays Bank in the 1990s, knowing what you ought to do is only half the battle. And the question is, is how do we align our insides, so what we want in the world, our best decisions, how do we get, put those into practice? So how do we change behaviors our own behaviors, behaviors of our people and organizations that we work with, how do we change behaviors to produce the kind of results we want in the world? Because we don't just want people who talk a good game. So we don't just want people who think, for example, that the world is warming and we have to do something. We need people to change behaviors. So that's one of our great challenges in the world today is having science where science doesn't provide the answers to everything but it does provide the answers to some things and we need in the world today and i mean in the business world too of course to where science provides us with answers we need to be doing what science suggests is correct 
It's not that science is infallible, but frequently it's better than all of the other alternatives. And that's true in our experience in, in, in recruitment, Laura, the experience you have in assessment centers, is that getting people to actually pay attention to what the facts and the data say is a great challenge for society. It's a great challenge for the guy who suffers a heart attack. It's the great challenge for parents who want to vaccinate their children or have their children go to good schools. And it's a challenge for business people wanting to lead in very complex and volatile environments. So we want science. When science is on our side, we want science to do the job. So there's an entire chapter in the book on influencing is how you change hearts and minds, which is part of the battle. And there's also a chapter on changing behavior. And those are two of the, if you want, the big chapters in the back of the book. Yeah, yeah. What I also, um, I mean, it's it's hard to say what I also, because I loved everything in, in the book, Paul, but one of the things that I have opened my mind to, and, and I will admit it's been um, um, in the last probably one year or two years the most, as a scientist, and I, again, maybe a different school, you know, I studied in England. Um, as a scientist, you're almost um, uh, trained, your, your, your mind is trained to um, refute some of the uh, things that don't immediately have a scientific, uh, um, you know, is not scientifically based. And what I'm referring to is the role of the mindset and the role of the spirituality and the role of, of value. Values. And I think I'm learning. I mean, I, I will be the first one to admit that things that I would have rolled my eyes at probably two years ago are making such a difference in, in my life, in how I personally change my behavior. And I love the thing that you, uh, the fact that you talked about the mindset, that you talked about values, that you talked about spirituality and, um, and, and bringing, you know, I'm thinking even meditation as um, um, into um, the, the mix, you know. Tell us more about that. Um, what particular and mindfulness? Yes, absolutely. Well, I think that is, uh, so people do say, well, how do you change your insides? How do you actually change the way the mind operates? And one of the ways, uh, and this is, again, this is science-based. So meditation uh, looks like it comes to us from the world of guys with long gray beards and saffron robes and is associated with 60s counterculture and, you know, Eastern religions and all of that. But despite that heritage, Mindfulness, there's actually more evidence for the effect of mindfulness than there is for almost anything else you can do in the self-help section of your bookstore. You yeah. take that whole self-help section in your bookstore and there's more evidence for what mindfulness can do. So what does it do? Well, one of the things it does is it helps you learn to watch your mind in action. So we want to make better choices in business. We want to make better decisions. But one of the ways we need to do one of the things you need to do in order to do that is to see yourself, watch yourself, watch your mind making the decisions it makes already if you want on default setting. So if you want to change a behavior, whether it's a behavior of uh, uh, business practices, maybe coaching my staff for 15 minutes uh, every week, having a 15-minute coaching session, or maybe it's spending 30 minutes a day on big picture visionary thinking. Say it's a behavior change like that that you want to do, you need to be aware of the default patterns. In other words, 
say you want to change the way you drive to work in the morning, you get in the car. That's such an automatic process that most people will be halfway there before they think, oh, I want to try a different route. The mindfulness offers the ability to kind of watch what you're doing more closely. And so when we do mindfulness education in business, we call it attention training because it's basically training your attention to watch more closely uh, the, the world and its environment. And so it, it, it improves uh, emotion control, it improves decision-making, it's related to creativity, it's related to, uh, in, the, in the psychology sphere, it's related to help with addictions and depression, uh, it's helped with um, what's called executive center function, so that's the brain's, if you want, the brain's control center. Um, is called metacognition or the executive faculty. So all of those things are strengthened by uh, mindfulness education. And so that's one of the reasons why Google, for example, and several other leading companies who have the money to experiment on these things are actually offering, Google have a program called Search Inside Yourself, which actually teaches their um, managers who are working, you know, people work like crazy at Google, 60, 70 hours a week, um, who teaches them the practice of mindfulness, not just because they want to be nice guys, but because they want their managers, their, their workers, making better decisions day in and day out. And so mindfulness education is one of the things I cover. There's probably half a chapter in the book on the evidence that mindfulness works in business and then some suggestions for how you might use it in your organization. Yes, and and I absolutely, um, I couldn't tell you how much I value that because, uh, again, um, I know that for myself uh, until, and because it is uh, shared with us in the form of mindfulness meditation, of course, I totally agree. It's about focus. It's about attention. Uh, but we hear about meditation uh, perhaps more than we hear the terms, uh, uh, the term attention. And until last year, I would tell you that myself, like many other people I talked to, uh, I was completely wrong about uh, what meditation was. I, I had no idea that it's actually having an awareness of the different thoughts and being a bystander of or, or you know, sitting back and watching your own thoughts. I was convinced that it's about uh, quieting your mind. You can't have anything in your brain. And, and I remember first time I tried, I decided I'm never going to succeed at this because there's too much happening in, in my head. So sure. um, another strong reason if I didn't have plenty already to, to encourage my clients to read um, your book. How... How do you think um, that this, the management of business is, is going to uh, evolve? What do you see happening? And how have you successfully applied um, everything that you write in the book in, in practice? And I know that it's more than one question, but I'll let you choose which one you want to answer first. Well, one of the things that I think is uh, really, really terribly poorly done is the way we educate business leaders. So... I'll give you two examples. So one example is change management as it is right now. I, I wrote in one of my articles that change management ought to be euthanized. We used to put it to sleep. So here a guy who's an expert, I suppose, on change management and who's written a, a book on change management saying, actually, what we don't want is change management. Change management is, is a way of thinking about the world, which is, should, be, should be cast out. 
So why do I say that? Right now, it's usually done by specialists. And what I say in the book that's somewhat controversial is when you're using change management people, you're covering up for deficits in stuff that leaders should be doing anyway. Yep. If you had a cadre of leaders and middle managers in your organization who are great at communication, great at resolving conflict, great at negotiating, great at bringing different stakeholders together around the table, great at inspiring, great at giving people context in the big picture. If we had people who had those skills, great at supporting people through change when there are emotional difficulties. If we had those skills in our organization, those so-called change skills, if you will, would we really need specialist change managers? No, I don't think we would. And so part of what change management is, it's, is it's to make up for deficits in leadership and management in the in the wider business world. And so why are those deficits exist? If you look at the Harvard Business School curriculum, it's a very fine university and a very fine business school, but if you look at their curriculum, there's only one out of about 100 electives which have anything to do with business change, managing people through change, leading people through change. That's one out of 100, and they're electives. It's not mandatory. So here we have a, uh, an individual uh, graduating from the best respected business school in the country. Well, let's say, for the sake of argument, it's the best respected business school in the country, um, with almost no knowledge of people and organizations of how to lead people through change. Yeah. And so if you look at business education, it's almost entirely, if you want to call secular, or almost entirely divorced from um, the real business of business, which is getting people to work together to produce value. Yeah. And the second dean of the Harvard Business School, a guy called Donham, said in the 1920s, I believe, he said, nothing is more important for the business leader than to understand human behavior. So here we have a guy who's a dean of Harvard Business School saying almost 100 years ago that we need to understand human behavior to be good business people. And yet we have a curriculum today which is almost devoid of, uh, of um, uh, uh, education on yeah. human behavior. So, I mean, I think, I'll, I think I'll, I'll leave the point there. The fact is we're really equipping people very, very badly in the business world. I agree. Paul, I think, I think I'm going to have to bump off sure, the, next, sure. uh, the next show because I think what we're talking about here, it's going to be more interesting. I, I'm joking. I don't know what the next <laughs> show is about. I'm just saying that we only have about a minute and a half till the end. But you know what? I think you need to promise on air that you will come for another show because there's so much more to talk about. I mean, just listening to you about eradicating change management as a concept because leadership should cover that. I'm thinking that goes for employee engagement, that goes for this, for the other. The problem is people who are in the leadership space don't think about it that way. So um, we'll have to find a way to change the world, Paul. Unfortunately, right. this is all we have time for today. Um, and next week is just interesting that I do have a um, uh, um, uh, representative of more of a traditional approach to um, change management, following the models. But Let's listen to next week, uh, 9 a.m. Eastern, and hear from Andrew Webster, and then we'll find a way to bridge both. And thank you for a great content, Paul. We'll talk again soon, no doubt. Everyone, thank you, Laura. have a great week. We hope you've enjoyed this week's edition of Because There's More. 
Join Laura Ellis again next Monday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern Time, and 2 p.m. GMT on the Voice America Business Channel. Be sure to tune in because there's more. Thank you.